Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 19th, 2010. This is one of those days where collecting the news stories, you're realizing, oh man, I don't want to like miss any of these. So I'm doing uh, like triage. Some stuff today, some stuff tomorrow. I'm sure by tomorrow there'll be more stuff. It's called job security. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said about God, and it takes discernment. But believe it or not, the Bible talks about discernment, the ability to discern true doctrine from sound doctrine, lies from the truth, false gods from the true God, uh, the true spirits from false spirits, if you will. There's, there's all kinds of discernment uh, work admonished in the scriptures. And uh, so what do we do? We compare what people are saying. Unfortunately, the people who are saying these things are people who claim to be biblical Christians. Well, they claim to be Christians. I don't know about biblical Christians. I mean, what does the Bible have to do with it? The Bible just seems nowadays to be just getting in the way of some good creative theology. If we could just get rid of the Bible and what it says, we can craft a religion of our own liking. One that's more relevant and friendly and more into love and unity than the, you know, the biblical Christianity. <laughs> so, that's what we do here. Lots and lots of stuff to talk about today. And uh, right off the bat, I want to thank our, Savior's, uh, our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was uh, their special speaker over the weekend, and uh, I was invited up. They were doing a, a youth uh, lock-in kind of thing. And, I mean, usually when a church does a lock-in, you know, that basically means they just pull out the television sets and uh, hook up the uh, the PlayStation 3s and the Wiis and and uh, play dodgeball. I mean, that's, that, it, that's kind of the idea behind the lock-in. Well, Our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids, uh, you know, as part of their youth lock-in, they actually had me speak for, it. Tur- I turned out, it turned out I spoke for about four hours on get basically a primer on biblical discernment, 
what the Bible teaches about it, what's the true gospel, what's true eschatology, and kind of laid out the case as to what the emergent church is, and more specifically, uh, what does Rob Bell teach regarding the gospel? And it was a fantastic event, good group of kids. A lot of parents showed up, too. And uh, and then I stayed on uh, for Sunday, and I taught the adult Sunday school class there and uh, and taught on uh, on biblical authority. How do, you know, is the Bible authoritative? Uh, you know, is it a constitution or is it a library using kind of Brian McLaren's uh, two uh, ways of looking at it? And just a f- great group of people and uh, want to thank them all for uh, having me out there and uh, hope, uh, look forward to coming back in the future. And by the way, our Savior Lutheran Church in Grand Rapids has probably one of the most amazing pieces of liturgical art I have ever seen. Uh, I don't, I, I, I don't know if they call it the, the Todayum panel, but uh, one of the members of the congregation has put together a, a, a basically a running piece of artwork that uh, incorporates the Todayum and uh, and kind of visually represents it, and it takes up literally, uh, the you know, three walls, uh, and it's not it's not full it's not full blown mural, but. Uh, it takes it it extends on three walls within the uh within the sanctuary there one just absolutely amazing i don't even know how to describe it i'm going to see if i'm i i might have to get a hold of pastor fleming there and uh, see if he has any photographs uh from this todayum panel it it just absolutely spectacular so great time up in grand rapids and uh look forward to uh, you know, going back and uh, maybe teaching there again sometime in the future. That was just fantastic. Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I got uh, news regarding the Beatles and the Vatican. This is kind of a weird story. Um, and then let's see. Um, news about the, the Vatican is claiming that uh, that uh, attempt by the atheists to have the Pope arrested apparently is just a publicity stunt. We'll talk about that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, actually, one of the first things I might talk about is is that the Exponential Conference uh, begins uh, this weekend. Uh, it's the supposedly the largest gathering of church planters on the planet. And then, uh, and then we've got the question. Uh, this is going to be this. I get the feeling that the, the this guy who writes for the Huffington Post. This is the first time I've reviewed anything uh, from him. He might become a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, he's got a piece called Have Christians Sinned Against Jesus' Gospel? And uh, this is just a, a fine example of emergent liberal deconstruction and tripe. And so, you know, <clears throat> not, not, I, when I say the word tripe, I'm not referring to a fish. Anyway, and uh, let's see here. And then a uh, Jim Wallace regarding social justice and the gospel. I don't know if uh, y'all have followed the flap that uh, Fox News's Glenn Beck has, uh, you know, basically created the brouhaha regarding social justice. Now, l- listen. I know a lot of my listeners listen to listen to or watch Glenn Beck. Um, I've only recently uh, watched a few episodes of his program, and so I'm not really well versed in Glenn Beck. Uh, his arguments. Uh, I've I've saw his segment that he did on social justice and uh, talked about Jim Wallace. And um, my initial reaction to what Glenn Beck said was, is that he's in the ballpark. You know, he's kind of on the right trail is a good way of putting it. However, when he speaks about religion, um, I'm sorry, he's just off. And, uh, you know, there's some conclusions that he drew that I think were overstated. 
uh, let's just say the facts weren't exactly in line. And as a result of it, he's actually given Jim Wallace a forum for uh, where, well, he's given Jim Wallace more credibility than he should. And so here's the deal. I, you know, I am very familiar with Jim Wallace's work. And the one thing I can tell you about Jim Wallace is that he is um, he's a tough cookie to crack. And uh, so rather than trying to cast blanket statements about Jim Wallace, uh, you know, what What I thought I would do here is let Jim Wallace speak for himself. And so we'll be playing a little bit of audio from Jim Wallace. And, uh, you know, what What I know of, of Jim Wallace and what I've been able to ascertain about him uh, in, in doing my research is, is that I'm pretty pretty well convinced that he's your garden variety, progressive, uh, uh, liberal type. And uh, and he's there's some theological and doctrinal issues there, but he's um, how shall I say it a little bit more adept at uh, not bringing those to light. So you have to you got to be careful that you don't overstate your point when you're talking about Jim Wallace. Let him speak for himself and then comment accordingly. I think a, is a is a better way of doing it. So we'll be looking at that, and then we've got a, a sermon today uh, from Shane Hips, uh, co-pastor with a. Uh, Rob Bell up at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grad Rapids, a sermon that he preached last week called Stay Thirsty. Stay Thirsty. Uh, we'll be listening to that and uh, seeing what uh, what that has to do. Oh, and by the way, all of the uh, all of last week's episodes uh, of Fighting for the Faith are posted and the podcast is updated. And if you haven't yet voted uh, for um, the uh, worst Easter sermon of 2010, this is the time to do so. Uh, please uh, visit fightingforthefaith.com. And uh, when you get to the uh, website, uh, you'll see that uh, the number one post there, and I've made it a feature post, so it'll stay up at the top, is uh, is the poll where you can vote on uh, who, was, who was it that preached the worst Easter sermon of 2010. So, uh, you know, of our, uh, all of seven of our uh, pastoral contestants are listed there in order, in order. And, uh, and so you can, you can uh, pick one and uh, vote for them. At the moment, uh, Rob Bell is, uh, is leading the pack. And, uh, you know, I won't let you know who was my, uh, who was my pick, uh, you know, at, at least not until next week. And voting remains open until, a week from today, uh, right before I go on the air. So after, as soon as I, as soon as I begin to record "Fighting for the Faith" in many days, I re, I pre-record so that I can uh, get off the air soon enough to uh, enjoy dinner with my family in the evening at home. So uh, as soon as I, uh, as soon as I uh, sit down to record the program, uh, at that point we'll pull the poll down and we will announce the official winner. Uh, next week, so just I uh, want to know you have until oh, you have a full week from today to vote, and so please do if you haven't done so. And then, uh, and it, oh, and by the way, <clears throat> still haven't heard anything from Perry Noble's uh, camp, uh, yay or nay, regarding my challenge to him to a live sermon cage fight at New Spring in Anderson, uh, South Carolina. I mean, not a word. From uh, from Perry Noble, so um, uh, I just want to bring that up, and uh, I'm going to start pressing the issue to see if we can't get a, a response, yay or nay, because I mean, after all, uh, Perry Noble basically said that uh, you know that uh, the reason why I'm reviewing sermons from people is because I don't have the 
Um, uh, well, I don't have the nuggets is the way he kind of phrased it to uh, to actually preach my own sermon. And so to basically show that, that that's absolutely false. I've uh, basically challenged Perry Noble to a live sermon cage fight. Uh, we can pick, you know, we'll pick a, a, a date. And I want, you know, not only am I am I brave enough to preach a sermon, but I'm even brave enough to do a live sermon cage fight against Perry Noble on his home turf. So, uh, you know, let's, uh, uh, yeah. if uh, I don't hear from them soon, I may um, consider giving out contact information that I've ascertained uh, and basically encourage you all to be making phone calls and sending emails basically to the effect of, hey, uh, how come you haven't uh, said yes or no to the uh, the sermon cage fight? So just want to let you know that's uh, something to uh, keep in mind. Okay, let's uh, move into the program proper. Lots and lots to do today, and I don't know why I'm talking about other things. All right. Ooh, that's loud. <laughs> From the Christian Post, largest gathering of church planters on the planet, set to kick off. Sounds like a football game. <clears throat> and now that I mention it. Anyway, uh, from the Christian Post, uh, this is by Joshua Goldberg in the, uh, over there at the Christian Post. The, uh, the story reads, over 60 national church planting leaders will seek to equip and mobilize Hundreds of fellow church planters this week in transforming their churches and their cities through what's being touted as the largest gathering of church planters on the planet. Uh, who would you think uh, is responsible for this particular meeting? Leadership Network, one of the Druckerite groups, the group that brought us the emergent church, responsible for... Uh, that particular project and unleashing them on us. Uh, they're the ones putting this together. Uh, from Monday to Thursday, church planners from around the country will gather for the 2010 Exponential Conference in Orlando to hear from prominent and respected church leaders, including Mark Batterson. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. Mark Batterson of Chase the Lion and Wild Goose Chase. Uh, in other words, uh, <clears throat> Francis Chan, whom I, you know, it's funny. I, um, I've had some requests uh, to uh, delve into Francis Chan's uh, uh, theology. I don't really know too much of him. Matt Chandler. Chandler's a good guy. And by the way, last week, uh, Matt Chandler, uh, who, who at this point, because he's bald and has this really nasty scar on his uh, on, on his head, he's kind of like, uh, he looks like uh, Darth Vader without a helmet on. <laughs> I say that in love. Matt Chandler is, you know, we we like we love Matt Chandler. We love the fact that he preaches the gospel. Um, he was at the uh, the T four G conference uh, together for the uh, gospel, and he had a segment where he was basically talking about suffering, and it was fantastic. It really kind of eye opening in some ways, a tear jerker kind of a uh, uh, a presentation that he gave. And um, he was talking about the fact that, you know, he, he said, you know, there's a lot of people, who, a lot of good guys who get a lot of flack for uh, going and speaking at conferences where the theology is all just all over the charts in a train wreck. And um, and he basically said, listen, um, those of us who know the gospel, who have sound theology, 
would be fools not to go when invited to these conferences because it, basically they're giving them a forum for preaching the gospel. And um, and so he basically asked for some graciousness, uh, you know, because there's, they get a lot of flack when they when uh, when guys like Chandler go and speak at these uh, conferences where the theology is all over the board and the dais is just basically filled with, you know, your garden variety uh, messed up uh, evangelical type that, uh, you know, whose sermons we uh, review here at Fighting for the Faith. And I think that Matt uh, made a a very good point. And so, you know, here Matt Chandler is speaking at at Exponential, and he's publicly made it clear that he's going there to preach the gospel and, you know, to basically be, be an ambassador for the biblical gospel. And uh, he's asked for some grace and mercy and, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, because he does get shot at from, you know, by going and, and talking at these things. And I, and I think Matt makes a good point. And so uh, don't don't think that because Matt Chandler is speaking at at Exponential that that somehow means that he's a sellout. I, in fact, I would say quite the contrary. I'm very thankful that uh, Matt is there and we should pray that Matt Chandler's, uh, you know, keynote uh, that uh, Christ would be exalted, and that the biblical gospel would ring in in the in the ears of these uh, church leaders who uh from you know, uh, from the sermons we've reviewed for many of these church leaders it's clear that they um you know they wouldn't know the biblical gospel if it came and and bit them on their hindquarters now the gospel would never actually bite them on the hindquarters, but it's just a figure of speech. you get what I'm saying anyways uh Dave Gibbons oh, I've got problems with Dave uh Louis uh, Giglio don't know him Alan Hirsch. Eh. Ed Stetzer and uh, Scott Thomas, among a slew of others, uh, through the 15 pre-conference intensives, five main sessions and 60 workshops, conference organizers aim to inspire, equip, encourage, and challenge attendees to plant churches and lead churches that experience and offer transformation. <clears throat> Let me read that la- the last part of that sentence again. Attend, uh, they are, they're encouraging and challenging attendees to plant churches and lead churches at that experience and offer transformation. How about uh, we plant churches where Christ and him crucified is preached every single Sunday, sound biblical doctrine is taught from the pulpit, and we let the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of his word, do the transforming work. Because, by the way, what I just said is not what those guys mean. Quote, we want everyone infused with passion. Oh, man, I've... (laughs) By the way, theologically, I'm not too thrilled with the word infused, because when you talk about uh, the Catholic uh, idea of grace... They talk about infused grace, so I'm not I'm not into infusion at all. I'm into imputation, but uh, infused passion. We want everyone infused with passion and equipped with tools needed to plant churches that transform the world. I'm not interested in transforming the world. I'm interested in proclaiming the gospel and letting God transform the world. Let God do what God does. Yeah, seriously. I mean, how many of you all out there really think that you can quote transform the world? I mean, I have a hard enough time being consistent in my re- in my exercise routine. How on earth am I supposed to quote transform the world? That's not my job. That's God's job. God is the one who gets to transform the world, and 
ultimately the transformation of the world that God's going to bring about is going to be the destruction of the present heavens and earth and the creation of a new heavens and new earth. Talk about transformation. Read Second Peter chapter 3. You know, you want the details biblically what this is going to look like? So, yeah, the world is going to be transformed. But the thing is, is that here and now, until Christ returns, we are called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So the the transformation that I really want to see or that I, that I think is something that we can kind of latch on to is the individual regeneration that occurs when people are taken from being unrepentant pagans who think only about themselves and are dead in trespasses and sins and God the Holy Spirit regenerates them. They go from being a goat to being a sheep, from being a pagan to being a, a somebody who is a Christian who pro- professes Christ and him crucified for their sins, trusts in the promises of the gospel for their salvation. And and the Holy Spirit indwells them and begins the sanctifying work of conforming them into the image, you know, basically in, in you know into in the image of Christ which is not perfected this side of the new earth, which is not perfected this side of, of Christ's return. This is not perfected this side of um, uh, uh, this side of uh, the, the second advent. It just, it, it isn't. That's the kind of, quote, transformation I think we can realistically latch onto as far as transforming the world. Transforming the world into what? I mean, haven't you all noticed something here? Christ ascended into heaven 2,000 years ago. Have we conquered the sin problem yet? Have we been able to end war? Poverty is still kind of a big pandemic global issue, right? Is that what you mean by transforming the world? Well, good luck. That does not mean that we should not reach out to our neighbor and love and provide for him. We absolutely must. But transform the world? Yeah, I, I, uh, Christ told us to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and to make dis- not disciples of all nations. Not, he didn't say go and transform the world. That, that, that World transformation is God's business, not mine. We continue. Uh, when what breaks the heart of God breaks the heart of a leader, transformation act- activates that leader and permeates the new church. That leader. Good night. Uh, seriously, that that leader begins. When when what breaks the heart of God breaks the heart of a church, transformation remakes that church and 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 that church and spreads throughout a city through new churches and life changing ministries. Why do I feel like these people don't know know what the gospel is? Um. When what breaks the heart of God breaks the heart of a city, transformation marshals God's resources and community assets to meet needs around the world, they added. This sounds like the social gospel. Y'all ever read Rauschenbusch? Uh, to help spark that the, the transformation, the conference is providing attendees a place for church planting leaders to gather independent of their heritage or denomination. That should be a red flag. Help for leaders to discern and commit to specific next steps in church planting. A nation, national conversation about church planting. Conversation sounds very postmodern. A comprehensive array of services in one place in a reunion-type atmosphere where planters connect, meet new friends, and reunite with old friends. 
According to the current schedule, the conference will start off with a pre-conference on Monday and Tuesday and move into the main conference starting Tuesday afternoon. The workshops, which are organized by roles and by stage and development, are designed for or both uh, the paid staff of a church plant and its member uh, members, church planting network leaders and leaders in the business world. Whether you're a veteran church planting, just exploring possibilities, or anything in between, we have workshops tailored to your stage and development conference organizers say. No matter your passion or position, we have workshops that will transform your role and your church. The conference, which is being supported by Exponential Network, the Catalyst Conference, the Leadership Network Outreach, and uh, the Willow Creek Association, among others, concludes Thursday at noon. Yeah, a big conference to help church planters uh, basically adopt the um, Peter Drucker innovative uh, uh, leader, CEO leadership model. Yeah, what about the pastoral model laid out in Scripture? You know, that highly unproductive one, the one that's really difficult and uh, it really is all about discipling, sound doctrine, proclaiming the word, administering the sacrament. That one? Yeah, that, I bet you they're not going to be uh, teaching that one. So there you have it, the folks over at, yeah, anyway. Now, this is a weird story. Switching gears here, we're going to switch things over to Rome here. The the Christian Telegraph, um, let's see who wrote this, if I have a byline on this. Actually, it doesn't give me a byline. So just from the Christian Telegraph, uh, the headline reads, Vatican paper says Beatles don't need absolution. What a weird title, but anyway. Um, on Wednesday, I'm going to ruin this this uh, this word. The reason why is I do not speak Italian. No Italiano for me, okay? On Wednesday, uh, La Observatore Romano, we'll just call it L-O-R for short, followed up on an article from last Saturday's edition which paid homage to the legacy of the Beatles. After reactions from the international media and from Ringo and from Ringo Starr cast the previous article as an attempt to grant forgiveness to the artists, the Vatican paper stated on Wednesday that there was no need for absolution. Hang on a second, I'm going to beat my head against something. Oh, that feels so much better. Oh, come on. The Beatles do need absolution. Listen to, the, listen to this. This is one of the stupidest things I've read in a while. The Saturday article was spun by the international media as an effort by the Vatican to absolve the Beatles for John Lennon's words, we're more popular than Jesus. Okay. The, the Vatican paper says the Beatles don't need absolution, and... It was it there. They this was there was a previous article that made it sound like the Vatican was absolving the Beatles for John's Lennon words were not were more popular than Jesus. I'm sorry, but um, John Lennon did need to be absolved. He was a sinner who needed the absolution. He needed the forgiveness of his sins by Christ. So he did need absolution. And that little statement that he made about being the Beatles being more popular than Jesus. Uh, that showed it pretty clear that he needed absolution. Uh, let me continue. The story of the Beatles by Gu- uh, Giuseppe, oh man, I'm going to mess this up, uh, Forentino Gaetano Valani begins, it's true they took stupefying substances, 
overwhelmed by uh, by success they lived dissolute and uninhibited years in an excess of boastfulness they even said they were more famous than jesus they had fun launching mysterious messages even satanic ones according to uh, improbable declarations sure they weren't the best example for young people at the time but neither were they the worst hang on a second i got to beat my head against something again <laughs> Ah, feel much better. Okay. Let me read this list again. So the, the Beatles didn't need absolution, despite the fact that they took stupefying drugs, stupefying substances, LSD, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. So despite the fact that the Beatles took LSD, they were overwhelmed by success and lived dissolute and, and uninhibited years. Um Think the uh, think sexual life of rock and roll star in an excess of boastfulness. They even said they were more famous than Jesus. They they launched satanic messages improbable declarations, but they weren't the worst example. Who cares if they're the worst? Those uh, this is proof positive that the Beatles were sinners in need of a savior. They needed the absolution of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They needed the forgiveness of their sins. But don't, don't worry, they weren't the worst example. I'm sure there were worse. I mean, just think of Anton LaVey. 40 years after they uh, their breakup, the Beatles' uh, beautiful melodies remain as precious jewels that have changed light music forever and continue to raise emotions, the article goes on. Noting that the lasting effects of the short, prolific, influential seven years in which the band was together, the writers ventured to ponder not what would have happened if, it, if they had reunited, but what music would have been like without them. The writer's perspective, which was printed on April 10th to observe the 40th anniversary of the official breakup of the band, was not intended to extend absolution, of which the four artists from Liverpool naturally did not have any need, LOR said. <clears throat> Okay, I don't understand this. Why would a Vatican newspaper claim that the Beatles didn't need absolution and it was obvious that they didn't need it? Has the Roman Catholic Church, has the Vatican completely uh, uh, lost sight of who needs absolution? By the way, those of you who are not familiar with the concept, basically absolution is the pronouncement of the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, it's to, you basically hear in your words that you in your ears that your sins are forgiven. Based on what I am seeing in this article, just the simple uh, this article correctly identified the sinful things that the Beatles did during their seven years together. And even though they wrote beautiful melodies, they were every bit as sinful as everybody else and more so in some ways. And for the this Vatican paper to say that it's obviously they naturally didn't need any absolution, it's ridiculous. The Beatles needed to hear the forgiveness of their sins. They needed absolution every bit as much as you and I need it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What is happening to, I just, ugh. I'm going to take a break. I'm just frustrated at the moment. <laughs> I'll get over it, though, I, I promise. 
uh, if you'd like to email me, uh, and uh, if you would like to uh, uh, send your absolution to me to let me know that uh, my sins are forgiven, I will gladly accept absolution because I need it. Unlike the Beatles, it's obvious that I need absolution. Um, you can email me. My email address is uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put um, in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll I'll come in again. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian jerks. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who yeah, do chief ex- weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And- okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! 
The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. If you think you or anybody else doesn't need absolution, then you do not understand just how sinful you really are. You probably don't even understand what sin is. All right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you see two buttons. One says... Uh, join our crew. The other says donate. And uh, when you uh, join our crew, you get access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove. And uh, you pay close attention because at the end there's screens there that uh, there's a screen that has a button for you to click for you to uh, access our cove. And there's a few of you who've uh, donated uh, a significant amount of money, and you do get access to the cove as well if uh, your uh, your contribution. Uh, exceeds uh, the annual, uh, uh, you know, the annual amount for uh, a Cove membership, and so uh, there's a few of you that uh, I we we're, we found some emails and they clogged in our system in our spam filter. Uh, people looking for uh, access to the Cove who've donated that way. Uh, we're going to get those out in the next day or two, so hold tight and uh, just want to let you know that. Okay, and and so of course, if you'd like to uh, send in. Uh, your contribution, uh, the traditional way you can do so by clicking uh, the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to uh, Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, man, I'm, I'm <clears throat> is it me or do I talk too much? Anyway, um, just looking at the stories I want to talk about here today and um, I'm behind. <laughs> Maybe I should just go for quality, not quantity. Um, let's see here. Real quick, uh, the Vatican claims that, you know, last week we talked about Richard Dawkins uh, is uh, hoping to have the Pope arrested when uh, the Pope visits uh, Great Britain. Uh, from the Christian Telegraph, the story reads, uh, uh, um, the Vatican atheist campaign to arrest Pope is publicity stunt. Uh, dismissing an atheist campaign to arrest Pope Benedict XVI is a stunt. To get public attention, Vatican spokesperson uh, 
Father Federico Lombardi has said, I don't think he's, I don't think this guy's related events. Anyway, he said that the uh, the Pope's September visit to Britain will go forward. One campaign leader has in the past suggested that a Catholic upbringing is worse than many forms of child abuse. Uh, the campaign led by atheist Christopher Hitchens, atheists Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, claim the Pope has committed crimes against humanity. UK human rights lawyers are prepping Uh, preparing a brief against Benedict, claiming that he has covered up sex abuse in the Catholic Church. And uh, atheist uh, polemicist Christopher Hitchin has argued that the Vatican is not a legal state and Pope Benedict cannot claim diplomatic immunity. For his part, Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist and leading atheist, said he hoped to raise public consciousness to the point where the British government will find it very awkward indeed to go ahead with the Pope's visit. At the press conference Tuesday, Father Federico uh, Lombardi described the effort to arrest the Pope as original. Quote, for the moment, it appears to be merely a stunt to get the public attention. He continued, it would be very curious for the Pope to be arrested during a state visit. Um, you know what? Here's the deal. I'm, I'm not convinced that Dawkins and Hitchens are trying to uh, uh, pull a publicity stunt. I, that just, uh, I, I think these guys actually might legitimately be uh, serious about what they're, what they're trying to do here. And uh, it's, an interesting, uh, it's an interesting point. And, uh, you know, and here's the deal. It's like myself as long as I'm not and I'm not an atheist and I'm tired of uh, the way the Vatican is covered up and basically uh, swept under the rug. uh, All of the allegations against their uh, against these uh, pedophilic uh, priests that they have. Now, here's my axe in this uh, particular fight, if you would. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm going to say very carefully because I'm going to make it very clear I'm not going to pull any punches, okay? Plain and simple, I believe the Bible teaches that the Roman Catholics' prohibition against uh, marriage of their priesthood is demonic. Now, in case you are sitting there going, well, wait a second, <laughs> what, what? <clears throat> Did Chris Roseborough just say that he believes the Bible teaches that the uh, Roman Catholic churches uh, basically uh, forbidding of marriage for their priests to be demonic? Did he actually use the word demonic? Yeah, I did. And in case in case you're not familiar with this passage, let me read it to you. Okay. First Timothy chapter four verses one through five. First Timothy chapter four verses one through five. I read. Now the Spirit, that would be the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Let me read that again. It's not the full sentence, so I have to keep reading it in context. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God gave to be created with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, in the latter times, the Holy Spirit says that there will some will depart from the faith and basically teach doctrines of demons 
what is an example of a doctrine of a demon? Well, these are guys who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Uh, think of, uh, we forbid you to eat anything except for fish on Fridays. Yeah. The Roman Catholic Church's policy that forbids their priests from being married is one of the things that God the Holy Spirit said would be a doctrine of demons that would manifest itself in the latter times. So uh, if you're not sure what my position is regarding the Roman Catholic Church's um, policy that forbids their priests from being married, let me make it perfectly clear. I think the Bible says it's demonic. And that's the reason why we are seeing Roman Catholic priests behaving as pedophilic demons. Because their policy is so against what God's word says that it's crossed the line into a demonic doctrine. I, for one, I'm serious when I say this. I hope Hitchens and Dawkins aren't pulling a publicity stunt. This is a serious, serious issue. The Roman Catholic Church has basically been covering um, up sexual crimes of the grossest nature for centuries, more than a millennia now. It's not even a secret. It, it's well documented through the Middle Ages and the Reformation even. And the root cause of this is their demonic doctrine that forbids their priesthood from being married. It is time for that teaching to go. <clears throat> anyway. <sighs> I know I sound like Rosebro said that, you know, yeah, I, I know. So it just so happens that I have uh, a very, very, very close family member who was molested by a Roman Catholic priest in my family. Very, very close family member. And so I am not, um, how should we say, um, I'm uh, not unbiased on this. And I strongly think that Romans, uh, 1 Timothy 4 is referring exactly to what is going on in the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, that's, that's that. All right, moving along. Okay, what's my time? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not going to be able to get to this guy. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to have to get to George Elric. From the, there's a guy in the Huffington Post who writes for the Huffington Post, and he does some religious stuff there, and his name is George Elric. And I'm telling you, this guy is going to become um, famous here at Fighting for the Faith if he keeps writing the way he's writing, but we're going to have to do this one tomorrow. The, uh, the his post and his his uh, article in the uh, Huffington Post is called "Have Christians Sinned Against Jesus Gospel?" Let's come back to that tomorrow. We'll come back to that tomorrow. In the meantime, um, we're gonna we're gonna tune in here to um, <sighs> Jim Wallace, Sojourners. Um, Jim Wallace, who's a great friend of uh, Brian McLaren's. Um, he's on definitely the theological left. And uh, recently he and um, Glenn Beck have um, 
traded shots, if you would, and on, on the whole idea of social justice. Now, here's the deal. Glenn Beck is not a theologian. He's a Mormon. Okay. That being the case, when Glenn Beck opens his mouth regarding religious things, um, many times I find myself doing a face palm and just going, oh! <laughs> Now, I've sent a few emails to Glenn Beck trying to hail him on the Glenn Beck frequency and say, listen, I can help you out here. I'd be willing to help, you know, kind of straighten things out so that you don't make some silly mistakes. Uh, so far, I haven't heard back from Glenn Beck. So, uh, Glenn, if you're listening, I love you. You know, you've got some great things to say uh, politically. I like what you're doing as trying, you know, using your blackboard to think through some issues. I think you've got some stuff that's spot on. But when you're talking about religion and Jesus and things like that, um, don't tread out into those waters until you've done your homework. That's all I can say about it. And uh, anyway, as a result of it, uh, Jim Wallace, I think, has uh, has done a fine job of defending himself. Uh, that being the case, it's uh, time for me to take on Jim Wallace. Why? Because um, Glenn Beck is not qualified to, and um, I, I would like to take a crack at it. Anyway, um, this is somebody that you've got to listen to carefully and parse his words carefully and biblically challenge his statements so here's uh jim wallace from his god politics blog um doing a, an interview where he is responding to the attacks against him uh that have been fired off by uh glenn beck and um anyway here's uh, jim wallace regarding glenn beck's criticism of social justice and don't worry, we'll clean up some of uh, Glenn Beck's mess because Glenn's on the side of the angels in many ways uh, when it comes to you know his fears of uh, of confiscatory Marxism. And uh, as a result of it, I want to help him out a, a little bit here. And so here we go. I'm not looking for a personal fight with Glenn Beck or anybody else, but I want to defend uh, the absolute conviction that at the heart of the gospel is this notion of, of social justice. I would all now stop. He does. That's Jim Wallace talking, and he's saying he doesn't want to pick a fight with Glenn Beck or anybody else. All right, um, Jim, you're picked a fight with me. I absolutely challenge you on biblical grounds that social justice is not at the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins is the singular heart of the gospel. And Christ tells us to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins and to make disciples. Now, caring for the poor Loving your neighbor is a fruit of the gospel, but it is not the gospel. Social justice is not the gospel. And 
I'd be willing to uh, have a conversation with you about this, uh, Jim. Just want to let you know. Say, personal transformation is at the heart of the gospel and is social justice. Why did Glenn Beck get on your case? Well, I don't understand why he is so upset about social justice and social justice Christians. That's who he attacked. He, he said... All right, I can answer the question. I saw Glenn Beck talk about this. Glenn Beck is basically a political commentator, and his big beef is that social justice is a term used by progressives that basically means that, in, in Glenn Beck's way of thinking, he thinks social justice is confiscatory, forced redistribution of wealth in a either Marxist or fascist fashion. Okay, in other words, social justice—the kind of just social justice that Glenn Beck is fighting—has to do with basically Marxist policies where the wealthy are forced have their wealth forcefully redistributed to non-producers at the point of a gun. Okay? In other words, it is state robbery. Thou shalt not steal. Well, it's the state stealing in the name of altruism. Okay? That's what Glenn Beck's all about. If your church even has social justice on their website, <laughs> or if the priest or pastor is preaching social justice. Run as fast as you can. Leave that church. Uh, turn your priest in the church authorities. I said, if he says we should leave our churches, meaning the Catholic Church, the Black churches, the mainline Protestant churches, the Evangelical, Pentecostal churches, his own Mormon church, they all believe in social justice. How are you and defining? Say, hang on a second. How are you defining the term there? Okay. It, this is where it gets really interesting. You have to be careful when you're dealing with liberals, progressives, or emergent types. And those are the, those are the circles that Jim Wallace runs in. Okay, It all depends on how you're defining it. If you're defining social justice as, and boy, boy that's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? Social justice. Justice has to do with the law, with punishing somebody who's done something wrong, with basically reversing an unjust situation. Now, here's the problem. Many on the theological left equate the gospel with giving the poor, a poor person a sandwich or they equate the gospel with fighting capitalism to replace it with a more equitable economic system so that everybody that the basically there's equal outcomes among everybody on the planet that's not the gospel that's not the gospel that Jesus called us to preach that's a debate that we should have that is an absolute debate that we should have. And don't think for a second that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you have to defend laissez-faire capitalism. Okay, 
here's the deal. I don't care if, if you're a capitalist. I don't care if you're a socialist. I don't care if you're an outright rank Marxist. Christ died for your sins. Now, the reality is, is that if you think the world is going to be made a better place through any kind of system that depends upon sinful human beings to run it, you've got another thing coming. If you look at the history of capitalism, oh, <laughs> laissez-faire capitalism has led to some brutal, terrible enslavements. And don't think for a second that capitalism is somehow clean and pure as the wind-driven snow. It isn't. Why? Because sinners are involved and they will always try to find a way to maximize in their sinful state um, wealth for them at the expense of other people. It happens. And so on the one hand, the liberals have some legitimate critiques against capitalism and some and some of the, um, let's say, end results of it. And at the same time, Christians have uh, can point to some pretty severe problems with uh, Marxist uh, solutions to capitalist successes. Why? Well, because Marxism, I think, is a, it's a disease. All right, it's an absolute disease. It's not the solution. The solution are just laws that protect people from predatory economic practices, not setting up a state and the state arbitrarily deciding uh, that you know, what they consider to be an equitable redistribution so that everybody gets the same thing. You know, at the end, I mean, seriously, we, I've lived through the Cold War and seen the wall come down, okay? Those of you who, think about it this way, okay? In the late 19th century and early 20th century, you have these grand experiments with these, these economic theories uh, based upon Marx. You have the rise of the Bolshevik state in Russia. You have the rise of fascist states in Spain, Germany, and and Italy, okay? And, you know, all of these problems that, you know, economically, all this angst, all this infighting and bickering between the different, you know, the, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and, and, and all of this kind of stuff, all of that continues until the end of World War II. At the end of World War II in Western Europe, all of these economic uh, modernist engineering ideas, that the economic engineering ideas come to a grinding halt, and what's put in place is basically a free market system. And what happens in Western Europe with a free market system? They become prosperous and wealthy nations peace-loving allies of democracy and freedom and liberty. So what, you know, and here's the deal. You look at the results of the, of these different economic philosophies and theologies, you know, I have to put it that way. These economic theologies put, you know, that, that can be tied back to Marx, uh, Nietzsche and, and, and these cats, all of them, lead to mass murders. All of them lead to basically the collapse of, of, of economies. And, and just the worst in humanity comes out at that point. 
You put in a free market system basically with, with the understanding that the individual is free to pursue happiness, but it's not the government's job to ensure that everyone achieves happiness. When that happens, you get great results. Great results. Are they perfect? No. Will we ever find a perfect economic system? No. Why? Because we're sinful human beings. And the job of the church, the job of the church is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and spur believers on to good works that are befitting repentance, including caring for the orphan, defending the widow, defending the poor, helping the poor get up on their feet. That's that we Christians were all about proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and loving and serving our neighbor. As far as Christians getting involved in some kind of neo-Marxist or neo-fascist economic theories that basically call upon uh, retooling our entire economy to go along the lines of, uh, you know, of a Marxist fascist uh, system. These things have already failed. And not only that, they're evil. They're absolutely evil. We have no business being involved in any of that kind of stuff. Anyway, let's continue. If he says leave our churches, we should leave him and not watch his show. But to say that, you know, uh, that, that, that Jesus calls us, uh, and, and, and I would say I was in the synagogue last Friday, and, and, you know. You were where last Friday? He was in the synagogue last Friday? What was this Christian leader doing in a synagogue? And, you know, Jewish faith calls us, and I was with some, some, some Muslims last night in New York City, and Islam calls us, uh, you know, to the common good, to serve our brother and our sister, and yes, to justice, to social and economic justice. And to say, as Glenn Beck has said, that's just a slippery slope to Marxism is just not true. Do you think that he'll keep this up if he sees that it's... Yeah, here's the problem with that, Jim, is that uh, your organization, as well as your buddies, are pretty much out there claiming that uh, we've got to adopt some kind of uh, a hybrid between uh, Marxism and capitalism, which, by the way, historically has always been fascism. Really helping your movement? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, uh... I don't know. I was surprised that he went after me in the way he has. I, but I also have pointed out to our people, if Jesus calls us to social justice, he also calls us to love our enemies. Um, wait a second. Uh, just a quick question. Where does Jesus call us to social justice? Where does Jesus call us to social justice? Again, how are you defining this term, Jim? This is uh, th this is confusing at best. And pray for those who persecute us. So I've asked our people: do not attack Glenn Beck personally. That we we no matter what he says or does to me or anybody else, do not attack him personally. And we have to pray for our brother, even when he attacks us. That's part of what Jesus commands us to do: love our enemies. And so uh, we got to stay on the high ground here. No matter, and Is it that's, hard? <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes uh, when when you're just when they're just misrepresenting, like they said, does the gospel call us to redistribution? And I said, yes. So Jim Wallace. 
the gospel calls us to wealth redistribution. No, it doesn't. Not at the end of a gun. Not at the end of a gun. Let me give you an example. Okay. Let's just say for a second that he can make some kind of theological point, abstract point, that uh, the gospel calls us to wealth redistribution. Does it call us to force an unbeliever to give up his wealth involuntarily and have it distributed to non-producers? No, it doesn't. The gospel calls us to lovingly and willingly love and serve our neighbor. Government doesn't encourage that kind of wealth redistribution. Government gets involved in snatching it. It's the government to come in. I, I didn't say anything like that. That's dishonest. Can you be a Christian and not be in favor of social justice? Well, I don't see how you can be a Christian unless you want to follow Jesus. That's the whole idea. <clears throat> unless you want to follow Jesus. Isn't it about believing in Jesus and Christ bearing fruit in our lives? Can you be a Christian and not be in favor of forced wealth redistribution? Absolutely. So did Jesus call us to a life of social justice? Yes. He lived it. He called us to it. The kingdom is about uh, changing the world. Did you hear that? The kingdom is about changing the world. That's liberal speak. The kingdom of God, they're creating the kingdom of God here on earth. That's the social gospel. That's not the biblical gospel. Uh, and us live with it. So, so yes, to follow, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. That's what it means. <laughs> and Jesus was in favor of social justice. Well, he lived it. He yeah. defined it. He, but not in the narrow political ways. It's Jesus called people to repentance and trust in him. Jesus forgave sins. Where's repentance and the forgiveness of sins in this grand social justice scheme? by the right and the left. I mean, it is true that term has been used by the right and the left for all kinds of ideological purposes that aren't necessarily the purposes of Christ. But what Jesus meant by, uh, by reestablishing right relationship you know, together is, is what we're called to. Would you say that social justice and Christianity are essentially the same and inseparable? Well, social justice is integral to, to the gospel. So when Jesus... Uh, his first sermon, his Nazareth, I call Now, we've covered this extensively here at Fighting for the Faith, Luke chapter 4. You know, he opens up the Isaiah scroll, I've come to preach good news to the poor, setting the captives free. <clears throat> when you understand what Jesus is talking about there, he's not talking about social justice. He's talking about you and I. We're, we're the ones who are captives. We're the ones who are poor. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you have a gazillion dollars in the bank. You're poor. And you are a captive. You are captive to sin, death, and the devil. And you are destitute when it comes to your righteousness before God. That's what Jesus is referring to. It's good news to everybody. Nazareth Manifesto, first words out of his mouth. He quotes Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Now, now, the word there for good news is... A now, it, it says good news. It doesn't say the forced wealth redistribution to the poor. Evangel, 
which you get the word evangelical. So what it was originally meant to be evangelical was to preach good news to poor people. So whatever else the gospel does, it changes your life, it heals your addictions. The Bible defines the good news as Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 7. The good news is not, hey, I've got great news for you. We've instituted a uh, socially just uh, economic system via our political means, and uh, we've got good news for you poor people. We're going to sock it to the rich, and we're going to give you their money. Here's your your family uh, brokenness. All that's wonderful. But if the gospel isn't good news to poor people, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's wandering into my area. The gospel is good news to poor people. The thing is, is how are you defining poor? We're all the poor. We're the ones who are the captives. If the good news isn't good news for everyone, then it's not good news. It's good news for both rich and poor. Slave master as well as slave. Jew and Greek. What's the good news? Look at what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. What I learned was the first importance I passed on to you, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the good news. The forgiveness of our sins won by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why in Luke 24, Christ says, Go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. And the fruit that that bears in people's lives does compel them to love and serve their neighbor, to feed the poor, to clothe the naked, to visit the prisoner. That's exactly the fruit of that type of repentance that comes through the preaching of the biblical gospel. What's missing in the liberal gospel the forgiveness of sins and Christ's penal substitutionary atonement, those are gone. So they've reworked this in such a way that you basically have a liberalistic, pietistic form of works righteousness without the forgiveness of sins. And that's the travesty. It's a false gospel. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're, we're going to dive into our sermon review today. Today, we're going to be reviewing a sermon from Shane Hips, uh, co-pastor with Rob Bell at Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, entitled Stay Thirsty. Now, when I reviewed this today, I didn't take it all the way to the end, so I don't know where it's going to land. When we get about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, I'll be in brand-new territory. So I, I'm curious to find out where this one uh where this one ends up, and what I heard so far is, well, let's just put it this way. Someone asked me, is it a stinky sermon today? I said, no, it's a sneaky sermon today. Sneaky! So you don't want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. 
You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. We're well into hour number two of Fighting for the Faith here. It's sermon review time. I'm already lining up stories for tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Good night. All 
All right, let's dive into our sermon review here. The good, the bad, and the ugly. I just like saying ugly. It's ugly when I say it like that. When I say ugly, like ugly. <clears throat> Today's a <laughs> weird mood. Sorry about that. Brain fried. I think I <clears throat> need a little more sleep. Anyway, today's uh, sermon review uh, comes to us, or sermon comes to us via Mars Hill Bible Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan. The place where I spent the weekend. Had coffee with Jeremy Bauma, too. Great kid. Oh, man. Thanking the Lord that God delivered him from the emergent church. Anyway, um, okay, so Mars Hill Bible Church, Shane Hips. If you're not familiar with Shane Hips, um, you need to go back through, uh, you, you know, like if you've only been listening and you're not, you've never heard me review a Shane Hips sermon, you got to listen to one. Shane Hips actually claims that all religions are true. They're like sailboats. You know, they—they're basically—they have sails that they've erected to catch the winds of the spirit, and so Christianity is probably one of the most efficient of the religions at catching the winds of the spirit. But see, it's that—it's not the important thing. Is not your sailboat the important thing? Is the wind of the spirit? Yeah, that's what Shane Hip says. Go back through it and, and just do a search. When you, you look, I have a little blog bar at the bottom of uh, the fighting, fighting for the faith website. And uh, you type, you can actually do a search engine search and, and type, in, type in shame and hips and listen to the sermons I reviewed of this guy in the past. He, they're doozers. They're sneaky interesting. And I've had a couple of conversations with um, Shane, and um, I think you'd be surprised to find out they didn't go well. Anyway, let me kill the music. So the name of this sermon is entitled Stay thirsty it's uh it's about john chapter 4 the you know where jesus uh has the, you know meets the samaritan woman at the well and, and it's all about you know water and you know that that you don't thirst anymore anyway i don't know where this is going to end up so i can tell you right now though it's sneaky listen carefully hey everybody great to be back uh, if you are the person who likes to have your Bible uh, reading through the passage with me, you can turn to the book of John, chapter 4. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. There are people walking up and down the aisles. Raise your hand if you would like a Bible, and they will provide you with one. Uh, a couple of things. Let's see. We've made it through the book of Jonah. Uh, Rob and I had an absolute blast deconstructing the scaffolding from our childhood that emerged around this book that... We discovered all kinds of really fresh things that were very exciting to us. I hope you had as much fun as we did. Notice the uh, phrase there, deconstructing. Yeah, that's exactly what he does. We did. Uh, we celebrated the resurrection. Uh, Rob brought a barn burner, a scorcher of a sermon, uh, which he always does. And we were grateful for that. And uh, so this morning, what we're going to do is kick off a series, which Brian referenced. Um, a lot of people think that the inst- he really thought that Rob Bell's uh, resurrection sermon was a barn burner. Uh, currently, it's uh, winning in the votes for the worst Easter sermon of 2010, currently at the Fighting for the Faith website. Just want to let you know. Inspiration of the series came because of the need for clean water in the world. Uh, in fact, the inspiration of the series came from the fact that Rob and 
I and Brad uh, sat down and realized that we have a mutual hidden passion for chemistry. And we felt that normally when you do a series, you pick like a book of the Bible or you pick like a subject that the Bible has. We decided this time we're going to just preach on a molecule um, because that sounds like a lot of fun. So now don't worry. He's not actually going to be exegeting the molecule. That's he's kind of tongue in cheek here. So you don't sit there. And go, oh, he's going to be exegeting water, not the Bible. No, no, no. He's going to that. That was a joke. We chose the molecule comprised of two hydrogen atoms and, and one oxygen atom, also known as water. Uh, and then we are going to maybe next, uh, the next series will be, we'll just pick like an element from the periodic table, like polonium or iridium. I think, that, I think that's one. I don't know. Anyway, um, we'll see. I don't know. That may not happen because there may not be very many references to those in the Bible. Uh, but there are to water. So here we are. We're going to do water. Um, now, obviously, this has been inspired by this whole thing um, with the need for clean water in the world. Uh, over a billion people do not have access to clean drinking water. That number is growing. It is a serious issue, and I am thrilled to be a part of a community that is actively trying to find ways to provide, at least in some small way, uh, access to clean drinking water. And so we thought it might be appropriate then to keep this issue of water on the front of our consciousness and our Yeah, that smells. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, that's Rauschenbusch. Um, yeah, okay. Awareness by preaching the ser sermon series alongside everything else that was going on related to water. So we're going to explore the biblical themes of water and how they relate to uh, our life of faith. And so much of what we'll all be doing outside this space uh, is dealing with the external realities of the need for water. Um, but to preach sermons in a climate like this where water is not in short supply, um, we thought it will be worth spending more time talking about the interior metaphors of water and how they uh, teach. The interior metaphors of water. Okay. Which is something about God. So that's mostly what we'll be doing. And I hope you'll enjoy it. I am really excited to do it. There's all kinds of fun things ahead. It will end uh, at the end of six weeks with a baptism Sunday here on stage. There's all kinds of exciting things planned. You won't want to miss it. Uh, so let's, uh, before we get started, let's pray. God of all life, creator of the elements, we thank you for water. We know that it is central to our existence. We also know that it is the cause of life and also the cause of death in the world. Immensely powerful. We remember those this day who struggle to find water. We remember those who fight for water. We remember those who don't have clean water. We thank you for the clean water that we have access to. And we pray now as we turn our attention towards the interior that you will guide us into a deeper understanding of you through the metaphor of this very, very simple but immensely important molecule. In your name we pray, as all God's people said. Amen. Great. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 4. There is a passage about a woman at a well. Some of you might be familiar with it. This is what we're going to be exploring. Now, before we get into the passage, um, 
the uh, what I want to do is set up kind of what's been happening in the Gospel of John so you know where we're going. Jesus um, is traveling through Israel, and Israel at that time in the ancient world uh, was basically divided into three parts. The, the southern region of Israel was known as Judea. The northern region of Israel was known as Galilee. Judea is where Jerusalem was. That's where Jesus uh, occasionally went. It was the religious epicenter of the Jewish world. It's where the temple was. Galilee to the north was also a, a heavily po- a Jewish populated region. That's where Jesus grew up. That's where he did a lot of his ministry in Galilee. And he would occasionally go in between the two regions. Now, between Galilee to the north and Judea to the south was a region known as Samaria in the middle. And that was populated by people known as the Samaritans, which we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago. So Israel at this time is essentially a Samarian sandwich, um, which I get if you add a little Thousand Island dressing is delicious, really delectable. I recommend it. I don't know. Anyway, so uh, the Samaritans, as you recall, were, were basically formerly Jews who were the offspring of the, Syria, the Assyrians and the Jews who intermarried, and they were hated, despised people. The Jews had no interest in these people. The Samaritans did not like the Jews. Lots and lots of hatred. Their history is very complex. There's a lot of abuse and a lot of violence that went on between these two groups of people. So what would often happen is if you were traveling from a place like Judea to a place like Galilee, Pharisees would often double their route, the distance they'd have to travel to walk around Samaria so they wouldn't even have to interact with any Samaritans. But Jesus, of course, who is the great iconoclast, says, no, I'm going to walk straight through there. So he is on his way from Judea to Galilee, and he's walking through Samaria, and he arrives at the town of Sychar, where there is a well that Jacob, one of their great ancestors, had first established. And it says, Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down by the well. And this is where we pick up our passage this morning. So let's look together at this. This is now verse 7 of chapter 4 in the Gospel of John. When when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John tells us, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which is in fact quite an understatement. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Now, hang on for just a second right here. This little interchange uh, opens up the theme that is all throughout the Gospel of John, which is a tension or a contrast between the exterior of things and the interior of things. John's Gospel, Jesus, is always having conversations with different people and audiences in which the audience is always focused on the external things of life, that which you can see, taste, touch, and feel. And Jesus is always interested in the interior of life, that which you cannot see, taste, touch, and feel, but that is no less real. And so this whole... Jesus is only interested in the interior of your life, the things you can't taste, touch, and feel? 
I mean, right off the bat, I just got to challenge that. I mean, didn't Jesus heal people of their sicknesses and their diseases? I mean, didn't he heal lepers, raise people from the dead, give sight to the blind? Um, uh, things cast out demons. I mean, seriously, um, why are we spiritualizing Jesus's ministry here at this point and somehow turning it into, you know, Jesus's real focus was only on the spiritual. I mean, are we turning Jesus into a Gnostic at this point? statement here of I have water to give you he's now speaking of an internal metaphor and she says how because the well is deep and you have nothing to draw it out with so this is setting up this contrast between interior and exterior and as I said in our series we are playing both those areas as we practice our initiatives in the world we are dealing with the exterior when we come here we're going to be exploring the interior so that's what we're doing this morning okay moving on Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Again, focused on the external. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. Fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Okay. So a couple of things about this passage that are important. There's so much in this. I'm going to focus just on one or two little things because it, it, we could go on for six hours, and that wouldn't be fun for any of us. Um, <laughs> first of all, hold on a second here. That's kind of a weird place to stop uh, when looking at this passage. All right, let's let's read the whole thing and uh, see if we can uh, keep this thing in context because, I mean, he kind of stopped mid-story. Did you notice that? I mean, that's... I mean, you that's like telling a joke, but never getting to the punchline. Yeah, let's let's read the whole story and see what uh, we can glean from this passage just on our own without Shane's help. John chapter four, starting at verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, this is kind of important. Um, uh, Jews don't talk to Samaritans, and Jewish men definitely don't talk to Samaritan women. So this is, uh, how shall we say it? Uh, you know, this is definitely out of the box kind of stuff going on here that Jesus is doing. This is uh, not kosher. 
to uh, misuse that particular phrase. All right, so we continue. Um, so the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Uh, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, where's the emphasis on that? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying these things to you, Jesus is pointing the woman to him. Okay, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not have to be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, this is interesting because at this point, this woman is thinking, I got to get me some of that water because if I can have like magical water that never makes me thirsty again, I don't ever have to come back to this well and drink from it again, you know, and do all this busy work that I do in the middle of the day. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, oh, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem, this is the place where people ought to, is, is, Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And watch what happens. So what happens is Jesus confronts her with her sins. Okay. This is not only is she a Samaritan woman, she is also, well, she's had five husbands and she's shacking up with the guy she's currently uh, living with. And he, she's not even married to him. And so Jesus tells her this and she says, okay, I perceive you're a prophet. And so she changes the story to the theological, to the religious. Okay. And here comes the big bone of contention between the Samaritans and uh, the Jews. Okay. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That's the big fight, right? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must 
worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is just huge. Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah in no uncertain terms to a Samaritan woman adulteress. And what does he do? He gives her repentance and faith. Just then his disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said to her, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar of water and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are four months yet until the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true that one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard him for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Wow. So all that talk about giving you water that you will never thirst again, a well welling up to eternal life. What is that? It's a belief in Jesus Christ. And see, that's the kicker. That's the punchline. This adulterous woman that everybody in the town knows she's had five husbands, she's shacking up with the guy that she's currently living with, and Jesus comes to her and he loves her. He loves her. And he gives her repentance and faith, and he confesses to be the Messiah to her, and she believes him, and she this water then wells up within her to eternal life. And what does she go and do? She shares this water with everybody else. What is the water that wells up to eternal life? Jesus. Great, great stuff. All right, now, with that in mind, having heard the whole passage and knowing the whole story, let's uh, let's hear what Shane Hips does with this. 
Jesus is trying to explain, you know, I'm talking about something other than the external well that you're looking at. I'm talking about something internal. And so what he does is in verse 13, he shifts the metaphor. So he's trying to help her understand this water is of fundamentally different kind. So if you look at verse 13, it says, everyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is now contrasting two images in an effort to help her find her way to the interior rather than the exterior. So he says, what I offer isn't a well. Interior rather than exterior? He's really talking about himself. He's pointing the woman to him. He is pointing the Samaritan woman to himself. He's using this object in front of him, this object lesson for her to see. This, by the way, an exact replica of an ancient Near Eastern well. <laughs> Would have looked exactly like that. Matthew, uh, who got this for me, told me that it's an Amish well. I feel like that's appropriate, right? Being a Mennonite, they got like the Amish to, to construct this well. Um, anyway, I'm a fan. Um, so, so Jesus says, what, what I'm going to help you see is that I don't offer you a well. I offer you a spring. And a spring is different than a well in a couple of very important ways. One, a well requires a certain kind of technology to access the water. A well is a very labor-intensive object in order to extract water, and a well has an unpredictable supply of water, so you don't know when or if the water will dry up in that well. But a spring, a fountain, it's the other way it gets translated, requires no technology to access the water. There is no labor involved. The water comes to you, and it is both effortless and endless. An unending supply. So there's something about the water that Jesus is referring to that says, what I offer is going to be a fountain, a spring, something that is effortless and endless. It won't be nearly as hard as this is. That's the first thing. He tries to shift attention to the interior, uses a different metaphor to do that. Next thing he does, this is a very important thing. The Gospel of John talks about this all the time. Is he says, this is a well that will be, or a fountain, that will spring up to eternal life. Eternal life. So the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John love to talk about something called the kingdom of God. They almost never talk about eternal life. John's Gospel loves to talk about eternal life and almost never talks about the kingdom of God. So eternal life gets used all the time. And in Christian popular imagination, eternal life is usually uh, something that has been stamped out into this wafer-thin kind of meaning. Eternal life in the Christian imagination is something that is almost always associated with something that happens after you die. You know, that's really funny. I, Again, I've been in the church for a long time, and even when I was a Nazarene, I was told how eternal life begins for the Christian at the time when he is born again. 
That's when eternal life begins. So, I mean, even, I mean, this, in fact, you can see this as a popular theme through Christian writers for, through many years and eras. This idea that the eternal life has begun for the, for the born again believer. Eternal life is something that is essentially synonymous with the notion of heaven. We all know that heaven is something you get after you die, somewhere out there in the distant future, which is all speculative because none of us, as far as I know, here are dead. We don't really. Uh, no, it's not all speculative because we have clear passages. Let me give you one. Um, one that we frequently have to reference here because it gets brought up so many times. Um, in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 25. Okay. Let me uh, let me uh, read to you uh, the the punchline. It's the uh, the sheep and the goat judgment, Matthew twenty five, uh, verses twenty. Uh, uh, sorry, we're gonna um, verse forty uh, four. Um, no, here we go. Verse forty five. You, you know the story. He separates the sheep and the goats. The judgment's already taken place by what you are. He then opens up the book, so to speak, and the sheep they. Uh, they did nothing but good things and weren't even aware of it. And uh, the goats, on the other hand, uh, they didn't even do any good works, and they weren't even and they weren't aware that they weren't. Anyway, you get the point. So this the parting shot here is Matthew twenty five, starting at verse forty five. Jesus says, "Then he will answer them, saying." Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this, by the way, the opening of this of this story is in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So here's the deal is is that yeah for the Christian eternal life has begun but um what happens if you uh if you uh crump you know die bite the bullet um you take the big dirt nap uh before Jesus uh returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Well, scripture's clear to be absent from the bodies to be present with with the Lord. And, you know, we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies and the basically the consummation of all things. Uh, you know, new heaven, new earth, new resurrected bodies. We do not, as Christians, live in an eternal ethereal state where we are disembodied spirits for all eternity playing harps on cloud nine. No, we're going to be resurrected. Uh, and hopefully I won't be overweight. Anyway, um... <laughs> So the uh, the point is, uh, you know, that uh, you know, when you take a look at what the scriptures say about this, uh, when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's talking about life that is forever, life that is eternal. And it begins this side of the resurrection and is consummated with a, a resurrection body, a resurrected body on the other side of Jesus's returning glory. So we're, we're, we're you know, for the Christian Christ's return is big promise. It's huge stuff. I mean, it's like Christmas times 10,000. It's huge. Okay? That's when we get to hear those great and glorious words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's when we get to hear that we, uh, you know, you know, that we uh, will uh, go into eternal life with our great king. That's when we get to see Jesus face to face with our own eyes. It's 
great stuff. Okay. Well, let's con- let's see what he's uh, doing here. I feel like he's doing some deconstructive postmodern um, mischief, if you would. Really know what? So, so that's what eternal life is: this promise of something after you've lived your life. That is not how John speaks about eternal life. That's not how Jesus speaks about eternal life. Jesus uses a... What do you mean he doesn't speak about eternal life that way? Have you read Matthew 25? You don't take one of the Gospels and and read it in isolation from the others. Verb to describe eternal life that is very, very revealing. And that verb is the verb welling up. Welling up. It's one of these rare times where I, point, I will point out that the translation of the Greek is a really good translation. <laughs> the, the Greek word really does mean welling up, and it's, it's, it's an excellent translation for this reason. The verb is what uh, shows us the truth about eternal life. Here's what the verb said. So uh, in the Greek, like in any other language, verbs have different kinds of... Ready for a grammar lesson? I mean, this is so much fun. I know this is why you got up early for a grammar lesson. I hated grammar. Um, they have different tenses. Verbs have different tenses. A tense is related to time. You have past, present, and future. He ran, he runs, he will run. Now, verbs also have in the Greek a kind of uh, what's called an aspect. Now, an aspect is the name. Um, why do I feel like he's... <clears throat> yeah, because we, you know, we talk about the aorist, we talk about the indicative, we we talk about present we talk about the perfect the pluperfect um yeah, hmm. nature of the event so the two different primary aspects there are others but the two primary ones one is a one-time event which grammarians love to call a punctiliar event isn't that fun punctiliar i i encourage you to try and find a way to use that in daily conversation if you can, at a, at a party, just work in the word punctiliar, I think you'll be not well-liked by anybody, but it'll be fun anyway. So, you should. so what is a punctiliar event? It happens once. The other is a continuous ongoing event. Okay? This word, this verb describing eternal life is in the present tense, and it is a participle, meaning that it is in an ongoing way. Present tense, ongoing. Eternal life is welling up right now and always. Not something you get in the distant, unknown, murky future after you're dead. Okay, no problems so far, but I have to put an asterisk there. I can kind of see where he's heading with this. And the direction ain't good. Let's continue. What this means, in other words, is that the possibility of eternal life starts when you are born. Sorry, that's incorrect. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Uh, we'll give you some lovely parting gifts there, Shane. Uh, no. 
<clears throat> the, the, oh, man, this is ridiculous. Um, let's see if the woman already has this because if he's he's basically saying eternal life begins when you're born. <sighs> no, it begins when you're born again. Let's see here. A woman from Samaria came uh, came to draw water. John four verse seven. Jesus said to her, "Give me a drink." For his disciples had gone to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "How is it that you would you ask for a drink uh, uh, from a uh, from me a woman?" Jesus answered, "If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water." Uh, does it sound like she already has eternal life at this point? Or is Jesus saying, if you had asked, I would give you living water? <clears throat> the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with. And the well is deep. Where do, you, where do you get that living water? Jesus should have said to her at this point, well, you already have it. It's welling up within you. It, it was welling up within you when you were born. <clears throat> Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will give, future tense, whoever will drink of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him, will become. Hang on a second here. Want to do a little bit of Greek work. I'm going to pull up my Greek uh, translation here. Un momento. There we are. Whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Yep, there it is. Um, yeah, will never thirst. Will not thirst is... Um, Let's see, dipsao, and uh, it's it's the third person singular future active indicative. Not too shabby. Okay, let's see here. So, um, uh, yeah, um, indeed, the water I give him will become. There it is again. Um, uh, and by the way, this. Uh, uh, become is from the Greek verb uh, ginomai. And in this particular verse here in uh, John chapter 4, verse 14, indeed the water I give him will become is a third person singular future middle indicative. Future middle will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Uh-huh. So just by the words that Jesus is using, first of all, future, second, saying that he's going to give it, implies clearly that the person that he was speaking with, this woman, didn't already possess this water that wells up to eternal life, but that he wants to give it to her and hasn't done so up to this point. So no, we don't have eternal life starting from the moment we're born. That's not what the text is saying. He's playing Greek word games with you. Not when you die. The experience of eternal life begins when you are born and not 
when you die. That is a shift in our thinking. So the next question should be, okay, if this eternal life, which is a reference to abundant life more than anything, more than about time, if it's really available right now all the time in this sort of welling spring, what do I do to get it? How do I? Okay, now keep in mind, I read the whole story to you. What was the punchline? They all believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. So how do you get this seed, this well of, this spring welling up to eternal life? Belief in Jesus. That's what the text says when you read the whole thing. Why access it? That should be our next question. And in fact, it is the woman at the well's next question. She goes on to say, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't, have, so I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming back here to draw water. How do I get this eternal spring of life water, living water? How do I get that? And Jesus responds with this simple instruction. Told her, go, call your husband, and come back. <laughs> huh? Of course. It makes perfect sense. What? No, 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 no. Jesus, we know that the answer is believe in you. Okay, what's he doing? He's deconstructing belief and trust and faith in Christ. Uh-oh. Well, the answer is pray more, or the answer is read your Bible, or the answer is act differently, or the answer is pursue justice, or... <laughs> the woman at the well is like, what? I have to have a man to help me get this water? No, thank you. I think I think I can handle this on my own. I mean, in the ancient world, women were the only ones who went to get water. They were beasts of burden. Men would sit around while the women were sent to get the water. And now Jesus is saying, you bring your man back here. Then he'll help you get the water. That's not what Jesus said. The whole point of the uh, of that little exchange has to do with her, basically him revealing himself to be the Christ because she, at that point, when he answers, "Oh, not you don't have a, you know a husband, you have five. That's the, the whole point. Is a point of, point her to him. Let's see what he does, huh? And then he doesn't stop there. So he says, "Why don't you go get your husband? Then I'll then I'll tell you about the water, how you get it." So she's like, "Forget that. That's not going to happen. We got to find another way around this because I don't have a husband." So this is what she says. Exactly that. I have no husband, she replied. In other words, come on, there's got to be another way, right? Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. You are right. Huh. Fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you're now, you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. What I love about this thing that Jesus does here is there's actually no judgment in this statement. We often read this to be like God confronting her with her sin and telling her to stop. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He just simply says, what you just said is right. You have accurately stated a very simple truth. And then I'm going to repeat it again. What you have said is right. 
He just holds up this mirror. And so here you have this woman who basically says, holds up a mirror. He basically exposes her sexual sin right there. And you're right in the sense that he's not being judging, but he, she goes, oh, I detect you're a prophet. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Hey, look, all I wanted is water. I didn't need your little prophetic power to come in and, like, expose me in this really humiliating way. That's not helping me find this water. I don't understand what's going on. And I think those of us who read this passage, and by the way, after this, they go on to talk about worshiping on mountains and stuff. They don't, they, they, like, what happened from this, how do I get this eternal water to, I have five husbands. And I don't have one now. I mean, how? That's a disconnect. Those of us looking for the answer, this should be a bit of a disconnect. There is something very important that Jesus is trying to point out about how we access this water. Uh, Jesus, believing in him, that's what the text says. Read the whole thing, like I just did. How we go about quenching this thirst. When I was a kid, I uh, played t-ball. Anybody familiar with t-ball? Do you guys play t-ball? That was easily the peak of my athletic career, I think fifth grade. (laughs) Shortly after that. I didn't quite have the hand-eye thing down, and so there was a lot of swinging and missing. Um, that T really helps. Anyway, uh, stationary ball also helps. But T-ball, one of my dominant memories of fifth grade T-ball, or I don't even know what grade it was. I think it was something like this, was that all fifth grade, is that like old? I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> when I was a junior in college, I played T-ball. <laughs> I was amazing. I was the best. As I said, peak of my career. Um, so I was much, I was, I was three. That's how old I was. <laughs> anyway, prodigy. Okay. Moving on. My dominant memory of T-ball experiences and games was that, uh, different families were responsible for bringing beverages at the end of the game to quench our third grader thirst, fourth, fifth, first grade. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so lost now. Um, and uh, and here's what parents consistently brought. It was like, this is the thing I remember most, is um, a giant chest full of crush soda. You guys familiar with crush soda? And it come in like variety of flavors. Grape was my favorite. Then you had orange, which was second. And then you had raspberry or something, which was like medicine. It was terrible. I, oh, that was a huge bummer. So you would race to the chest to grab grape or whatever it was that was your favorite. And uh, And then occasionally they'd have like, Another family would like really show up and bring like Coke and Pepsi and things like that. And then we would just pound these pops. You guys call them pop here, right? Is it pop? In Minnesota, we called it pop also. Anyway, so we'd pound these beverages. Now, what's interesting to me about that strategy for these very well-intentioned parents is that um, when you drink a beverage like that and you're thirsty... What happens is because you're ingesting a fluid, it triggers in your body an illusion that you are quenching your thirst. And the reason it's an illusion is because those kinds of beverages have ingredients in them 
namely caffeine, sodium, and sugar, which serve to further dehydrate you. So in a sense, what you're doing is merely masking and intensifying your thirst rather than actually meaningfully quenching your thirst. What Jesus is trying to do in this passage is show this woman how thirsty she really is and how she has been masking her thirst with things that only make her more thirsty. The string of men in her life reveal not her sin, but her thirst. <clears throat> really? Then why does Jesus go around forgiving people's sins? And why in Luke 24 does Jesus say, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins? He exposed her sins. You are a woman who is thirsty, longing for some deep connection. And you'll notice that your strategy so far has been not very effective. It has only made you more thirsty. If you want this kind of water, the water that Jesus is talking about, you have to be thirsty. This water ain't for you if you're not thirsty. The thirst is the thing that drives you to quench it. And Jesus is trying to show us that we use the external things of this life to try and quench a thirst that is actually internal and can only be quenched by an internal source. So he's basically saying, look, you can keep having more husbands. You can keep finding these relationships. But I want you to know that every one of those is sort of like drinking from Jacob's well. You will be thirsty again. What I want to offer you is something so incredibly powerful that you will never thirst again. But in order to get it, you have to find that thirst. The deep, fundamental thirst. So there's all kinds of things we're thirsty for, we're longing for. And what's interesting about them is we have all kinds of strategies for quenching that thirst. So some of us might have a thirst for success. Some of us might have a thirst for significance. Some of us might have a thirst for security. Some of us might have a thirst for relationships, connection, love. And all of those are fine, and we use all kinds of things to get them, different jobs, get married, all kinds of different ways to make this life enjoyable somehow, to quench these... Isn't this terrible? I mean, here we got this great story from the Gospel of John that, I mean where Jesus lays it out there and reveals that he is the promised Messiah to an adulterous Samaritan woman. 
and she goes and tells everyone, and the Samaritan village believes that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. It's all about Jesus. And I, I think Shane's completely missed the whole point. Little thirst. The thirst, though, that Jesus is talking about is so much more fundamental. It is the mother of all thirsts. It is the deepest thirst. And it's a very, very simple one. It is simply the thirst for deep joy and peace in this life. So Jesus was offering to quench her thirst and give her deep joy and peace in this life. Yet the whole town had joy because they believed Jesus was the Savior of the world. And that's the best that you can come up with, Shane? That's the best that you can come up with? Wow. I'm completely underwhelmed. It is the thirst for this eternal, abundant life while you're here. Not just waiting for when you die, but actually to experience this incredible peace and joy here and now. This fountain that wells up, that quenches that deepest thirst, making all the others sort of interesting at best, but non-essential. How aware are we of that longing, that really deep thirst? Are we aware of the ways that we mask the deepest thirst with more superficial kinds of thirst? Are we aware, are you aware of the strategies you are engaged in? They don't even have to be sinful strategies. They can be fine things. This is what Jesus wants to show us. Those things are fine. You want to have a string of relationships? Fine. But I have some. Really, I just find it really, really, really hard to believe that Jesus would say, you want to have a string of adulterous relationships? That's fine. No big deal. No problem. But, you know, you're kind of missing. You're missing the uh, joy and peace that I'm offering. Yeah, they're not, they're not going to offer you the same thing that I'm offering you. It's kind of sad. But if you want to go that way, if that's fine, uh, no problem with it. None, none whatsoever. It's okay. Something better. If you'd like that, I have it. But in order to get it, you have to feel your thirst. If you're not thirsty, you will not be driven to quench it. So my invitation to us initially, right now, is to spend some conscious time surfacing your thirst. Jesus didn't spend time with the Samaritan village surfacing their thirst. The woman went and told everybody, it's the Messiah, it's the Messiah, and they all believed he was the Savior of the world. You know, if you want to spend some time, you know, Surfacing your thirst, you know, you go right ahead. That's fine. That's fine. I'm sure that's what Jesus would say. I'm sure he would say that. I'm just, you know, it's fine. I mean, you know, but you're kind of missing the point. If you can feel your thirst, 
That is the beginning of accessing this fountain that Jesus promises. Here and always. Now and always. This may sound strange to, to say how you quench your thirst is by feeling thirsty. <laughs> but that's what this passage indicates. Jesus doesn't say much more after that. The starting point is, are you thirsty? Yeah, actually, the text says a lot more after that. And I read it, and it's all about Jesus in the Samaritan village believing that he's the Savior of the world and worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And here's the funny part, Shane. Jesus did say that those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And since you're lying about Jesus, this really isn't pointing people to Jesus, nor is it pointing them to the true worship of Christ. Because Christ doesn't join his spirit to lies about him. Next week, we will talk about where we find this water. But for now, my only interest is what Jesus' interest was, which is just feel thirsty again. Just become conscious of the thing you long for, the deepest thing you long for. The other thing I want to, uh, <clears throat> before I close, next week I have a uh, teaching that I'm going to be doing in which I will require the services of, um, of several people who play the trumpet. So, uh, in fact, I was told that like way back in the old school of Mars Hill, there was a group of people called the Trumpets of Thunder. Anybody know this? I don't know. Very few people knew about the Trumpets of Thunder. It's a secret band of people. But if you know of the Trumpets of Thunder or if you were a member of the Trumpets of Thunder, please come and find me after the service because I have a, a task for you. If you were not a member of the Trumpets of Thunder but you know how to play the trumpet, please come and find me after the service. I would love your help during the teaching. Um, <clears throat> how thirsty are we? For what? I want to pray for us all now as we close. God, will you help us connect with our fundamental thirst? That deep thing within us that drives us to long for you. And as that thirst surfaces, God, may we present it before you with a very simple heart. And ask that you connect us then with this fountain. This fountain of eternal life that does not exist somewhere in the future, but exists right here and right now. A gift you give freelessly, freely, effortlessly, endlessly. All for the sake of love, just because you love us. In your name we pray. Amen. You know... Uh... The short one-chapter letter uh, that was written by Jude comes to mind. Boy, the, is it me or did this uh, sermon leave you thirsty? Thirsty for the truth, thirsty for Christ, thirsty for the gospel, thirsty for sound doctrine, thirsty for God's word. The Apostle Jude, brother of Jesus, writes, but these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed 
By all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively, woe to them. For they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perish in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds who feed only themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment over all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such ungodly ways, and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain an advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will, become, there will come scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What leads to eternal life? Well, Jude said it here, Jude verse 21. It's the mercy of our Lord that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that has been stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Quite a contrast. Yeah, Shane Hips's sermon about water left me thirsty for the truth. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there... Uh, you'll see two buttons, one that says join our crew, the other says uh, donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to contribute automatically $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio, and uh, and you also get access to our cove when you do so. And, of course, if you would like to uh, uh, send your contribution in securely, you can click on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. What would you think? I'm going to go get some water. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until, uh, well, tomorrow. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>